Hi, my name is Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to Toolbelt Extra, an additional episode outside the regular fortnightly podcasts. In these Toolbelt Extra episodes, we slow the pace down a bit and take a deep dive into the life and work of my guest writer. I talk to them about what's happening in the genre they write in, their inspiration and their tips for those aspiring to be published. And taking us for a bit of a masterclass in this episode is Al Robertson. Al's first science fiction novel, Crashing Heaven, was published by Galantz last summer. And in this one-hour conversation, we cover, amongst other things, planning versus improvisation, why concision and clarity are so important, the place of cyberpunk within the sci-fi genre, the state of British science fiction and fantasy, and Al's recommendations for reading on the craft of creative writing. I hope you enjoy it. And welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt. My guest today is the writer Al Robertson. Al is many things to many people. Officially, he helps global organisations to define their brands and then bring those brands alive through good writing. He's worked with the likes of Vodafone, Legal and General, Ericsson and Sony, and the newly refurbished Gothic Splendour, that is Strawberry Hill House, for whom Al has recreated the voice of its builder, Horace Walpole. He's helped all these organisations to work out what they need to say and how best to say it. But that's just the day job because he's also a poet, a musician and a writer. His novella, Of Dawn, appeared in Interzone and was shortlisted in the Best Short Fiction category for the BSFA Award in 2011. In June of last year, his debut novel, Crashing Heaven, was published by Galantz to critical acclaim, and the sequel, Waking Hell, is going to be published in 2016. So, Al, welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt. Oh, thank you. Lovely to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Most writers love a book when they're a kid. So, what did you have your nose in when you were when you were little? Good grief. All sorts of stuff. I mean, first of all, I was brought up in France till I was seven or eight. And on the one hand, that was fantastic. I mean, I, I was a huge fan of Tintin. I loved the Tintin books. And I loved kind of just looking through those trying to work out what was going on but the thing that made the really big impression on me out there wasn't so much reading um, in particular because they teach you to read a bit later in France so when we came back to Britain I think I was about six or seven I couldn't actually read so I love the kind of visual nature of Tintin I love the clarity of Hergé's storytelling but the thing that really blew my mind was the French understood the, the prisoner in Space 1999 to be kind of young children's programs. And so I, I used to watch them dubbed into French when I was kind of four or five. And that was a mind-boggling experience, you know. Um, the, 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 there are bits, monster bits of Space 1999 that still kind of echo through my head, um, particularly because I didn't really know what was going on. Even the prisoner watching it as an adult, you don't know what's going on. But you watch it as a child and you think, well, all these grown-ups must be making some sort of sense. And you sit there puzzling away at it. And so, yeah, I remember that very clearly. And that, that was very formative. You know, that was fantastic. From my limited knowledge of Tintin, there are a couple of books in that series which have a kind of sci-fi feel to them. Because I think he goes to the moon at one point, doesn't he? He visits the moon. Um, and in fact, we've just started our little bio. Yeah. It's um, Destination Moon and Explorers on the Moon. And that's fantastic. That's very kind of, you know, Werner von Braun-style rockets taking off to the moon with kind of slightly 50s espionage things going on as well. And yeah, they were they were brilliant, you know, because on the one hand, they were full-on science fiction, you know, people flying to the moon and having adventures. But on the other hand, they always felt incredibly credible. And Hergé was a tremendous realist, so you could see him sort of working out in pictures, how would this work? What would it be like for people to walk around on the moon? You know, little things like how does the ladder extend out of the side of the moon rocket for you to climb down? And just having that kind of level of detail and, and nitty-gritty to think about at an early age was brilliant. There's something in the precision of all of the detail there that helped to bring the realism. And in some of the episodes, I've talked about something called sparse and specific description and using very detailed descriptions and not a lot of it to really bring a little bit of realism to writing. So what prompted you to start writing? I've kind of always done it. So I wrote, I tried to write my first book when we came back to England, when I you know, began to, to read and write. And I, I must have been six or seven. And it was a Zorro book. And I remember very carefully wrote out several pages and got my mum to stitch them together with thread because it would look like a real book. And I remember being tremendously disappointed that when she'd done this, it didn't somehow magically turn into a kind of printed book of some description. You know, it was, it was still my little handwriting and my little pictures. 
but it's you know it's something I've kind of always done. Oh, um, you know whether I've been writing stories. I mean, I spent a lot of time in in my teens and twenties writing poetry. I worked in the film business for a bit. I was I was in development, so I was sort of thinking about scripts, about how how to make them better. Okay. Um, about who to sell them to, and of course professionally, you know, I settled into life as as a sort of corporate writer. Um, so it's it's just something I've always done. And that work is is what I described as your day job. Mm. Looking at what you do, it sounded as if tone of voice was something that is very important to you in that in in that your kind of professional life how does that work for you in terms of working with these companies well in a variety of different ways i mean i'm, I'm a freelancer so i tend to either work directly with companies myself right i'm, I'm sort of bought in by agencies of, of various different kinds to do work on their behalf and i've done particularly a lot of work with an agency called afia over the years for a tone of voice specialist who are wonderful to work with and what we tend to do is is we go in and we try and understand in the same way that designers do it visually they try and understand what what makes a particular company's brand tick and then they try and find ways of communicating that in a unique way so you're sort of saying okay what do you do why is that attractive to people? How are we going to tell them about it? And the designer would do it through kind of imagery, through color schemes, through well, through the whole design thing. Um, and someone like me does it through words. So I'm saying, okay, well, what kind of conversations do you want to have with people? How do you want to come across? You know, are you going to speak to them quite formally? Are you going to be very friendly and open? Uh, at what kind of level are you going to share information? All that kind of thing. So, you know, I think a lot about how companies present themselves through the written word and how they can manage people's perception of them through that, but also really how they can how they can have the most efficient conversations with them and build an honest relationship between them as people selling something and people who come to them, consumers or customers who are wanting to buy something, and how we can make that relationship as strong as possible, as quickly as possible by choosing the right words to talk about it. In creative writing, people do talk a lot about discovering who their characters really are. Do you see a link between understanding the authenticity of a character mm. in, say, in a, in a novel and understanding who the corporate character is that you're working with? Absolutely. I mean, that, that comes out very directly in Crashing Heaven because you have these corporate gods and the corporate gods are basically sentient corporations. You know, they're something like uh, mm. what, you know, like Sony or Ericsson or whoever that we experience every day. They just happen to have logos that, that are individuals that come and talk to you in, in your bedroom or whatever and, and try and build a relationship with you. Writing those entities in the book came very directly out of the brand work I do because I'm always thinking if this corporate entity had a personality, right. how would it talk to you? How would it come across? What would it want to say to you? How would it want to engage with you? So I tend to think of, of corporate entities in those terms anyway, so it's a very natural thing. The big difference is that in, in a novel, you, you, you're kind of fascinated by how people change. So things happen to them and it changes them in certain ways. And in particular, you kind of want them through the ringer a bit. You know, you want bad things to happen to them because you want to see how they respond to that. Um, it's a great way of, of, of showing their personality and letting their personality develop. When, when you're dealing with corporate brands, they want to be seen as kind of permanently perfect and permanently on top of things. So you don't necessarily have that drive to change and develop in quite the same way. So, yeah, I suppose a corporate brand doesn't want necessarily to be influenced does it or or swayed from what it is no. it has, it's a it's a fixed point when i interviewed lee harris who's a senior editor at tor.com i asked him what the single most important thing mm. was that he was looking for in submissions that came to him and he said voice and i distinctly remember that he answered that question Without any hesitation, he just said voice, more important than character and setting and all the rest of it. Voice was what he was really interested in. Obviously, voice is important to you in your work. How do you use voice in your writing and particularly perhaps in Crashing Heaven? That's it. Yeah, I've been thinking about that ever since you mentioned you might want to talk about it because... The way I use voice in, in my brand work is, is really specific and really detailed, you know, so I, I can spend days agonising over a few sentences. And if I did that at novel length, my head would explode and I'd, I'd still be writing the, the opening chapter of the book I started writing in 2001. So on, on one level, voice is kind of unconscious in the book. But on the other hand, you know, I think for me, it works on an image way, particularly I've, I've got a background in film. I used to work in feature film development. Part of my degree when I took that was in our, our history. History. And I'm very used to thinking visually about things. So I think for me, it's I, I don't know if voice is quite the right word. It's kind of vision. I tend to establish a set of images and also a set of music as well that defines each book. And then I try and write out of that. Crashing Heaven, for example, is, is very inspired by The Third Man. 
um, by Jan Svankmeyer, who, who's a brilliant Czech surrealist animator, his film Faust, um, by Stan Brakic, who's kind of an American underground filmmaker, who's absolutely wonderful. And those guys fed into it quite strongly. Um, oh, and Powell and Pressburger as well, of course, magnificent filmmakers. So the, there's also very specific music that sits behind it as well. And so for me, the voice of the book doesn't come from me thinking, you know, what words am I going to write? How am I going to write them? It comes from thinking, what's this book going to feel like? And, and then trying to reflect that in the kind of events and images of the book. So I'm just thinking now about some of the characters in Crashing Heaven. When I was reading that book, the sense I got was that you are drawing on a whole range of experiences, a different genre, different media, probably, but certainly because you've talked about visual media and you've talked about music. And I just wanted to sort of find out from you what you thought were some of those inspirations, some of those roots for your book. Well, the films I've already mentioned were very important. Um, the Third Man, you know, I think is one of the greatest films ever made. It's a script I went back to again and again when I was working in the film just to remind myself of, of what I felt the perfect script was. I think it's a fantastic piece of filmmaking. So partially for, for its kind of structural effectiveness, for its concision, and partially because it has this wonderful atmosphere of sort of damaged people in a broken city trying and, and mostly failing to put their lives back together after a catastrophic war. And so that led into um, in, into crashing heaven quite a lot. Jack coming back home to meet the friend he thought he was a friend, but who he's both betrayed and who's betrayed him, is, is a very strong echo of, of, of the characters of, of the third man. Um, you know, sort of coming back to this broken, broken Vienna, discovering that, um, you know, your best friend Orson Welles is, is actually both dead and even worse. You know, there's, there's a big echo of that. And that's actually, when you first meet Harry, um, one of the characters in Crashing Heaven, it's written to be a, a, a literal visual echo of, of what happens when you first meet Orson Welles in The Third Man. So there's that. There's Powell and Pressburger movies, you know, just the raw imagination of those films is extraordinary. So, you know, that, that fell in there very strongly. Strongly, um, in particular, a matter of life and death, where the setup is David Niven is is a terribly, terribly, you know, very posh, very dashing World War II bomber pilot, and he's flying home from a night raid on a night of heavy fog over the English Channel, and his his plane, everyone on the the plane is dead, and it's this really shocking opening because the camera pans through corpses in a bomber to get to David Niven. and he's about to bail out without a parachute because his parachute's been destroyed, so he knows he's going to die. And while he's 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 about to die, he, he has a radio conversation with a radio operator back in, in England to let her know what's going on and that he's about to die. And while he's talking to her, he falls in love with her. And he then jumps out of the plane and one assumes he's going to die. But he then comes to on a beach in Britain and he thinks he's dead, but he's not. He's somehow magically survived. And he survived because the angel that was sent to bring him back to, to heaven or hell, uh, presumably heaven, missed him in the fog and couldn't find him. And the film then continues sort of, you know, dealing with this and dealing with the, the David Niven character, Peter, sort of coming to terms with this, working out what to do. And it turns out he's got brain tumour. So he's dying. But there's also this whole sort of imaginary thing going on where he's tried in the court of heaven to see whether he should be allowed to keep on living his life. And it's magnificent. It's, it's the best British special effects movie until probably something like 2001. Um, it's, it's, it's a splendid work of the imagination. I mean, it's, it's problematic in some ways, but fundamentally it's a marvellous film. But what, what was really important for me was that it had this kind of dialogue between the real and the unreal built into it. And that's absolutely essential to the whole of Crashing Heaven. You know, you have a dialogue between the real world as, as Jack and Fist perceive it and everything that's overlaid on it. You have the weave, which is the kind of fully pervasive virtual reality that people live within that is completely unreal. But you also have the sort of unreality of, of the various kind of lies and deceptions that they have to uncover through the book so you have these kind of two levels going all the time so that that film was yeah was was tremendously important very inspiring and those guys as filmmakers are masterly it's fascinating to hear you talking and thinking yeah i can now understand some of where you've come from and where you're going with some of the things in crashing heaven so yeah. you talked a little bit earlier on about some of the visual images and i was i was really struck in in that book by particularly the puppet fist and some of the visual description and perhaps because he's a puppet this lends itself all the more to the kind of thing that you're talking about even you know, the, the the colors of his cheeks and some of the clothing he wears can be very stark and very precise 
I wanted to talk to you a little bit as well about music and the musical dimension of this. I understand that you've got some experience playing in, in, in different bands, and in different musical environments. How did that experience help you with the book? When it comes to writing, I'm, I'm sort of a relatively high-skilled person. You know, I tend to think about things in quite technical ways. And I'm, I, I spend a lot of time writing out of deep knowledge of one mm. kind or another, whether it's kind of narrative structure, both from the fiction and the film stuff, or whether it's sort of branded writing from being, you know, in effect, a, a professional writing consultant for probably about 15 years now and the music i really can't play notes you know i mean i i have a bass guitar and i, I can make interesting sounds with it and i played bass in one band for a while the stella maris drone orchestra and we were kind of an improvised drone band and then i was a vocalist in a metal band which was a huge surprise you know to me and everyone else because i, I can't actually sing and I've, I've never tried to sing but you know we started off with me reading poetry over sort of ambient music and we got a drummer we got a guitarist uh, the drummer like playing faster and faster the guitarist and, and the electronics got louder and louder and all of a sudden we were a metal band you know and so i i was sort of chanting poetry with another vocalist who, who was who joined us over improvised beats in sort of 20 minute songs where we tried to kind of recreate the old testament or, or summon right. uh the hunter to to <laughs> pubs in south and east london and and yeah, various other places, Southampton as well, I think. And so the, the real contrast there was between doing creative stuff from, from a position of, of you know, some, some technical proficiency versus absolutely having to make it up as I was going along because I didn't know what I was doing. And that was actually a tremendously important lesson was, was to be open to improvisation, to just making things up, to not worrying whether something's working or not because if it is working great just go with it and if it's not working well it might turn into something interesting so just keep doing it and i really couldn't have written crashing heaven without that things like hugo fest for example the, the ventriloquist dummy i absolutely hadn't planned him as a ventriloquist dummy um jack forster um his, his kind of not quite as big as a master because he never does what he tells him to but uh, his human jack forster was was intended to be a kind of faust figure and fist was was meant to be mephistopheles you know this kind of dark um, demonic entity and originally he was just going to be a slightly amorphous shadow that was very spooky but when i started writing him with a scene where you first meet hugo where he first starts talking was when I first met him, because he came onto the page as a ventriloquist dummy. And I thought to myself, well, that's cool, you know, how, how interesting a ventriloquist dummy in science fiction. Let's go with it for a few pages and see how it works. And I did, you know, I kind of just rolled with it. And, and he began, he became stronger and stronger as a character. You know, he was wonderful to write. He pretty much wrote himself. I mean, everything you've ever heard about ventriloquist dummies possessing you is true. They take that. <laughs> uh, and, and so as I wrote him, I was thinking, well, this is marvellous. You know, on the one hand, he's working really well. Um, he, he fits beautifully within the book. He, he's, he plays a great role in sort of being this kind of bad guy who's, who's on a journey to hopefully being less bad. He works brilliantly with the imagery of the book. He's a wonderful way of thinking about technology. And so just, just feeling confident to go, well, this is kind of working, so let's go with it, was, came absolutely out of the music. The problem I had with him, I actually spent most of the book thinking to myself, well, this is great, but why the hell is he a ventriloquist dummy, you know, 700 years in the future? How am I going to explain this? You know, I, I really hope I come up with a good reason before I reach the end of the book. <laughs> and so, again, the, the scene where you find out why he's a ventriloquist dummy towards the end of the book was, again, the point at which I worked it out. And I really didn't have too much of a clue before then. And then, and so when you do discover that, that scene is pretty much 100% me going... Oh, thank God, I justified <laughs> the ventriloquist dummy thing and it works yeah. really well. So, you know, and from then it was just taking him to the end of the book. That's very interesting. I think when writers discover characters or discover aspects of the plot partially formed at least or fully formed it's a wonderful moment mm. and i kind of subscribed to stephen king's philosophy that we're all archaeologists and we dig something up oh, yeah. and we have to dig it up carefully because there it is and it appears before us the way in which that relationship between Jack and, and Fist changed over the course of time, for me, was one of the real treats in this book. And I, I'd, I'd be interested to know yeah. how much that was pre-planned. Was this the technical owl or was this the improv owl, that Jack and, and Fist relationship? A bit of both. I mean, the, originally Fist was going to be evil all the way through, and the book would end with, with Jack kind of scraping him off like a barnacle and, and finally escaping him. But... That too kind of took me by surprise, the sort of deepening relationship between them. 
And in the original draft, the real turning point for that is relatively early on, I think about a third of the way through, Jack gets offered the opportunity to, in effect, have Fist lobotomized, you know, to have his brain burnt out. So he just becomes a tool. And um, he decides not to do it. And in in the original draft, Fist was not sideways by this and suddenly became this very kind of fluffy, well, not fluffy, he's never fluffy, but became much more appreciative of Jack. So effectively, he had two settings. Beforehand, vicious little ungrateful bastard. And then afterwards, vicious little grateful bastard. Um <laughs> Um, yeah, it, that's a pivotal moment in the book. I think it is one of the things which really fascinated me about about this work in that you didn't just say, here's your bad guy, and eventually Jack manages to zap him and he's gone. Mm-hmm. But actually, there was something redemptive in the way in which Fist reacts when he's shown mercy. He's shown mercy by Jack in, in a position where he didn't, Jack didn't need mm-hmm. to do that. Uh, for me, that then made me think, okay, so I think you are beginning to explore some of the notions around who is, who is a person here? Is Jack a person? Is, is Hugo Fist a person? And at that point, I thought this is now a really interesting story because we're seeing these, this relationship unfold between these two. I mean, it's, it's one of the things that really struck me writing the book is that they're all people, you know, I mean, even Harry that, the, you know, the, who's a very, well, he's not a wicked person, but he does very wicked things in my head because I've sort of occupied him. You know, I, I, I understand absolutely why he's done that and I understand absolutely his progress through the book. So it's very difficult for me to, to judge him as a bad guy because in my mind, what he's doing is perfectly understandable given who he is and given the situation he's placed in. I think that that holds true for Jack and Fist as well. And one of the interesting things was was in, in writing them was that sense of, okay, you know, if they are people, if they are both 100% people, even if they're not human, how does that work for them? How do they negotiate a relationship together? There was a lot of rewriting. The draft of the book that you read is, is actually about the 17th draft. Counting a draft as a kind of, you know, full read through making more or less substantial changes. And I did a lot of work on, on Jack and Fist, you know, first of all, just on my own. Secondly, with, with Sue, my agent, who, you know, I have a very strong editorial relationship with. And then finally with, with Simon Spanson at Gorham's. And a key part of it was the book stands or falls on that relationship, especially because in the early parts of the book, the, the antagonist is pretty much Hugo Fist himself. And a lot of the drama of the book comes from Fist being nasty to Jack and, and watching Jack deal with it. And then as the kind of big plot kicks in, other bad guys sort of take over. But I think a lot of the, er- the tension in the early parts comes from, from Fist himself and, and what he's trying to do to stop Jack um, doing what he wants. So I wanted to sort of explore a little bit further the way and some of the sort of aspects of, of planning. Mm. Now, so you've talked about this already. How much did you plan and think about the, the corporate characters in your book? They kind of evolved too. There, there were originally 12 of them because you have 12 gods, you know, um, it just seems like the number of divinities one should have. And I, I had them carefully worked out. So I had a reason of a very developed understanding of, of basically the economy of most of the solar system and the roles of the gods within it, and, you know, thinking of them partially as kind of sentient entities, so I thought about them as individuals that you can engage with, and partially as kind of massive corporations, you know, Chibols or or Zaibatsus or whatever you want to call it. So, you know, I'd worked out exactly what areas of kind of industry and whatever else each of them was responsible for. And they got chopped down six just because 12 was too many. You know, there were lots of gods hanging around in the background doing nothing. And so it was kind of a streamlining thing. And it's turned out to be very useful because what what the gods now have, there were originally 12 gods when Station got kick-started about 700 years ago. It was populated by 12 gods. But there's a long, complicated history of takeovers and divine brands disappearing over the centuries and stuff like that and that's something that comes out quite strongly in waking hell you discover a lot more of the history of station so it's very nice to feel that they have this kind of complex history of, of moving slowly towards what's monotheism effectively but apart from that i mean gray and east the lead gods are, are, are lead gods because they're the most interesting ones for me east who represents media and gray who represents kind of corporate strategy and corporate management you know two things that really really fascinate me and i was like well this is brilliant I can use them to talk about in very direct way how the media landscape manipulates individual people within it, how corporate structure defines the kind of lives people have. And so that was kind of very consciously planned. So I was like, yeah, if I tell the story with those guys as very strong, present people you engage with all the way through, you'll be able to dig into these aspects of the future and of the present in, in a really clear, specific way that's hopefully on the 
has both kind of an element of analytical rigor to it, but is also fun to read because they're kind of cool people. I mean, East in particular is I, I love, you know, she she's one of the lead characters in the second book, so she's been in my mind a lot for the last couple of years. And she's she's just wonderful, you know, this kind of completely amoral, glossily superficial. Um, ratings-driven entity, you know, she's great fun to write. And Grey as well, you know, Grey's a bit more Machiavellian, um, very manipulative and very confident, but there's an aspect to him. I, I saw him as an Odin figure. I mean, what I love about Odin is that he's the kind of leader of the gods, but he knows the apocalypse is going to happen and there's nothing he can do about it. So he's sort of agonised by this sort of sense of, of a broken future hurtling towards him. He's constantly worrying about it. And that doesn't really come out in Crashing Heaven with Grey. And I think it will come out in future. I'm not quite sure how to bring it up. But there is darkness hurtling towards the solar system. And, and Grey is aware of it. Um, he's, he's deeply worried by this kind of fall towards monotheism, to, towards just having one corporate entity running the whole of humanity. Because at that point, the corporate structure just starts exploiting people because there's no way for them to escape from it. That's something that comes up very strongly in, in Waking Hell. You know, you meet a full monopoly that that is a god. You know, the Pantheon aren't a monopoly. There are six of five or six of them battling with each other. But once you've got some, once you've got a corporate entity, you know, like Grey or East of Earth in a fully monopolistic situation, they start treating people really badly just because they can. And he knows there's this 700-year history of takeovers that the number of gods is constantly shrinking. You lose one possibly two gods in the action of crashing heaven uh, it's inevitable that you'll lose more gods and one of them will come out on top and then everyone's completely screwed there's backstory he worries about that you, you you find out nothing about in crashing heaven but but again comes out in the next two books station is not what you think it is the history of the gods is not what you think it is he's more aware of that than most people and he kind of worries about that and what i'm working on at the moment is a way of, of sort of bringing all that to pass so all his fears are either coming to are about to come true and and he's forces uh he tries to force a solution to them and, and things don't quite work out how he thinks they would so, so are you working on that third book at the moment yeah yeah i've, I've yeah. Um, just submitted um waking hell um and we're i'm waiting for kind of editorial feedback on that so i'm sitting down and just sketching out purging system which will be the third book uh, right so you've got heaven hell and purgatory um and um I'm sketching that out and that will be that will conclude the story in broad right. the story that I started telling in fashion right. So did you find that as that became more complex as you worked on the story, then you start to zero in on aspects of it and one aspect becomes the first book, Crushing Heaven, and another aspect becomes Waking Hell. Yeah, it was I mean it's partially a very natural thing, you know. So if you look at the three books, it's kind of quite clear divide between the yeah. three of them. But that again, that's kind of improvised. It's something I sort of happened across to an extent. You know, as I was writing the books, I realised, oh, you know, well this is how Crashing Heaven works. If I want to contrast, then you know, I go into the deep past and I go into the deep future and blah blah blah. So it's it's partially planned and partially improvised. And going back to the music, I think had I not had the musical experience of being a, a terrible bassist in a functioning band, you know, being on stage in front of 200 people and you feel you can't play your instrument is terrifying, but you've got to do something just to keep things moving and you do and it works out okay. So if I hadn't had that experience of just being forced to just make it up out of thin air, I wouldn't have reached this stage now yes. where I have this kind of relatively ordered view of the th all three books because I wouldn't have been able to bridge the gap between sort of feeling like I should have total control over what I was writing and actually having to make up a lot of it as I was going along. So do you perhaps feel that as a writer you are by instinct a technical planning person but that your life experiences have shown you the benefits of improvising and you know flying by the seat of your pants as it were sometimes? I'd like to be a technical planning person but I think I am flying by the seats of the pants person but i mean that that's been my whole experience of writing is you know it's it's a process of discovery not just of what what what, what on earth it is you're writing about but also of the kind of writer you are i mean I, I spent a good 10 or 15 years thinking i was a really obscure postmodern poet and i'm not you know I'm, I'm as it turns out um i'm, I'm a genre novelist you know at the moment deep in science fiction i spent you know a good few years thinking that i was probably some kind of film guy and i should i should be writing movie scripts but i'm not so it, part of it is just throwing yourself into things and seeing what works you know i don't know about you but my experience is it's never what you think it is you know and that that's the fun thing that's the nice surprise it's like, oh wow didn't expect that to happen 
I guess for me, the experience of writing more and more has become one of trying to identify the authentic situation in whatever the story is. So I think this is one of the reasons why I was attracted to your book is because in a fantastical situation, I'm looking for the authenticity. That exists. So even if you read mm-hmm. some of the kind of writers of weird fiction, people like China Mieville or M. John Harrison and those kind of guys who create bizarre mm-hmm. contexts, I'm always looking for an authentic presentation or representation of what is actually happening. And that can happen even in the most bizarre places. But I wanted to come back to a couple of things that you were saying. You, um, you're a poet and you've written poetry and you've obviously worked with film script and worked in that context. Mm. What do you think you've learned from that or what have you brought with you from those those two experiences from poetry and film into your writing? Well, from poetry, it's partially use of language, you know, just thinking precisely about that. If you tell stories in poetry, you can do it in a really free way and in particular free of genre expectations. You know, if I write a short story or a novel where a dragon sticks its head through the window and starts talking to me. <laughs> it's very clearly fancy, you know. I have expectations of fancy. You must fulfil them. Whereas if I do it in a poem, people oh, how interesting, a dragon. I wonder what it's yes. nice for. Yeah. You know, so you have a freedom there that's really useful. And also a sense, a sense just of unreality. You know, I mean, the problem with fiction is that there's a feeling it's got to be real. And yeah, on, on one level, you're absolutely right. You know, it has to respond to kind of observed and experienced reality. There's got to be a bridge into it. But on the other hand, it's just ink on paper, you know, there's nothing real about it whatsoever. So my attitude is, well, you might as well have fun with that unreality and throw in the spaceships and the dragons and the whatever else. Definitely, yeah, absolutely. It's, for me, it's like being a musician, you know, it's like, well, do I have an acoustic guitar or do I have a massive stack of Marshall amps and 42 effects pedals, you know? Do I want to be Bob Dylan pre-electric or do I want to be Hawkwind, you know? There are so many tools, so many more tools to play with once you start writing non-realist fiction because there's so much more you can do with your story and i love that um so that that sense of freedom comes from the poetry and also a lot of poetry theory i mean i was while i was writing crashing heaven i was reading a lot of charles olson who's a a mid-century postmodern american poet and he's very concerned with having just the right amount of content and openness so you sort of help people think about something but you don't tell them what to think you know he called it open field poetry you kind of create an open field within which they can think and you give them materials but they sort of assemble something final for themselves and that was something i was very i'm always very keen to do in fiction you know i don't want to beat people over the head with with meaning Mm. and philosophy or whatever it's like i because i've done that you know my first novel did that and it will never see the light of day (laughs) so it's it's that that too was very influential and from the film really just narrative structure i mean film and, and concision Film people are very, very concerned with with building strong narratives and telling the most story with the least amount available of of kind of action, of dialogue or whatever. Partially that's the nature of film scripts. They're very stripped down things. You know, they're not in pieces of writing, they're creative briefs. So that concision was useful. And partially just thinking, you know, why do I need someone to speak when I can show, show this with a look? Why do I need to explain something when I can just have a sort of tracking shot? So that sense of concision is very important. Everything technical I know, I know from film. I don't know from writing, but reading books about writing fiction. I know it from from thinking about film. I'd agree with you. I think that's actually a, a, an excellent discipline on writers. Although obviously, as writers with just pen and ink, the written word, we don't have the benefits of the visual presentation that film has. So how can we overcome that? What are the things that you do? Well, we do. There's, there's an absolutely fantastic book by Eisenstein called The Film Sense. And he, he was obviously one of the early great filmmakers, you know, the, the great Russian filmmaker um, of, of the early part of the 20th century. And, of course, he didn't really have antecedents, you know, he didn't have a century or so mm. of film to look back on. So what he does in this book is is do things like, you know, instead of saying, oh, well, I will go and watch Scorsese and learn how to make films from him, you know, he goes, OK, well, let's take this paragraph of Dickens to pieces and I will show you how to read it as a series of different shots edited together to create an effect and then I will show you how to replicate that in the film. So I think absolutely we have that ability. We have that ability to direct the gaze of the reader we have that ability to throw anything we want to at them, you know, any kind of um, audio effect, visual effect. We can show them things without, dis- we can describe things rather than tell things. Uh, we can let things slip in dialogue. We build subtext, um, all that sort of stuff. The only thing I'm jealous with, with film people for is that if you look at someone like Tarkovsky, you know, he, he, a lot of the time in his films, he just lets the camera run for a while and you just look at a landscape and you're watching the landscape through his camera. 
And as a filmmaker, he's doing very little. He's framed a shot and kind of left you to it. But the effect of that is tremendously powerful. But it, it's mm. just machinery working and you watching the machinery working. And we don't get to do that. You know, we, we have to use language to describe things all the time. But within that, you know, the, the tools that a filmmaker uses to tell his or her story and the tools that we as writers use are, are very, very similar. It's just that our tools don't cost several million pounds and need five to ten years in development and you've got to do casting and you've got to negotiate with lots of people. You know, we get to do all that ourselves. It feels from what you're saying as if you would encourage writers to set the bar very high in terms of this is everything that you can do with the written word. Oh, yeah. At its most simplistic level, it feels a bit like show and not tell. But it's not even 2.0 of that. It's 3, 4, 5. Absolutely. I want to come back now to something that you said actually fairly early on in our conversation where you referred to the way in which perhaps British fantasy had been presented with an opportunity, which it hasn't taken. And I just wonder what, what your vision would would be of developing that fantasy if you had the chance to pick up where those masters of that time had left off where would you take it and what would you be doing now well i mean to an extent crashing heaven is it it's me chucking absolutely everything and <laughs> hoping for the best i mean I, the, the film the single film that i would go back to is you know i i think it gets huge respect i wish it was more of a turning point than it is is quatermass in the pit because i think that's a masterly both film and tv series because it contains fantasy science fiction and horror it makes serious points about the society of the day i mean it's a film that's very concerned with the the race riots in notting hill you know that were happening at the time it was made um but it also works as a kind of metaphor for dealing with any kind of other or any kind of different that, that still resonates tremendously powerful today. I think we have this constant in, interplay between imagination and repression. And at the moment, it feels like in the world of genre, at least imagination is winning. We have some magnificent writers working at the moment, who are, you know, very fully recognised for what they do. But certainly in film, the repression feels like it's, it's it's won out over time. You know, British imaginative cinema isn't what it could be. And the sad thing is, we're very good at, you know, special effects. We're very, you know, we build the Star Wars sets at Pinewood. We do the special effects in Soho that bring absolutely anything you could ever want to life. But we're, we're not very good at pulling all that stuff together into films that we make for ourselves. I think we do that better on television. You know, I think the high point of that was probably British 70s children's television, which was completely insane. So, um... <laughs> I, I do wonder whether part of the, the reason why this occurs as well is something you alluded to earlier, which is writing words on the page doesn't cost very much. Absolutely. Yeah. But a film in the genre that we're looking at is 100 or $150 million ago. Absolutely. So if you're going to invest that, if you're one of the, the, the corporates... Uh, I can just imagine how some of your corporates would would deal with that. They want they uh, want uh, a very they want a very prescriptive story structure. They yeah. want prescriptive characters. They want a, they want a, an equation where you you kind of put in the variables and you get the right answer out, which is that actually it'll make three, four, five times its its cost, and that's mm. it. Everybody goes home happy. And I, I suspect mm. that that kind of tradition of the British fantastic that you're talking about doesn't fit that equation very well, certainly in terms of films. It can, it does with books. I think that you've got, no. as you say, there's some fantastic writing around and, and people do have a following, but people, the people who have that kind of money are not wanting to put that kind of money into it. Yeah. It's the culture of safe, I think, and how that actually, I think, has had a very dampening effect mm. on just allowing children to to see fantastic things and to experiment mm. with with things which from an adult's point of view would seem bizarre and slightly unnerving but which from a child's point of view just yeah. are wonderful i don't yeah. think it exists really terribly much at the moment mm. and, and mm. perhaps some of the things that are being written at the moment i mean like Hugo Fist, if we just take your character Hugo Fist from, from Crashing Heaven, I mm. suspect that Hugo would be a big hit with kids and would fill a lot of parents with horror. Well, he's built to be, you know, he, he is in effect a, a 70s children television character, <laughs> you know, Basil Brush on the rampage. <laughs> so he, he's absolutely that. Within the book, you know, that's one of the things he's designed to do. And I think as a reader, one of the things you're meant to do is kind of go, what the hell, they did that? Yeah, but equally represents the trend now which is to make disturbing try and make disturbing things cuddly but because there's still the disturbing thing under the cuddly thing you know what you end up with is kind of bizarre so i mean that comes out in in the next book there's a whole group of characters who, who think they're playing video games and they're actually being trained for some very serious warfare and of course that's a great science fiction trope you know 
end is going on. But also, it's something you know that the, the U.S. Army now designs its its weapon system control sticks around you know sort of Sony or Xbox um, game controllers because people are so used to playing those and transition very naturally into a kind of combat environment with them. So there's this weird sense where you know lovely consumer entertainment is actually training us to kill people and is actually doing so in a way that real armies are going, oh, this is great, we can use this, you know, we can use these people. So there's there's something strange going on. And that's that's a concept that's kind of begging to be explored, really, isn't it, I suppose? Oh, absolutely. I want to come back now to you as a writer, some of the things that you've done to allow yourself to be a writer. You have to fit your writing around the day job and, and you're, you're a dad and, and all whatever else you get up to. What routines, if any, do you use and how do you manage to find time to write? Well, it's, it's, it's a balance. I mean, you know, I'm a freelancer, so I'm, I'm fortunate in that I, I can be very flexible with, with my um, sort of corporate work. And, and the two kind of feed into each other to an extent, you know, stuff I do in my creative life, I, I can use in my corporate life and vice versa. But yeah, for, for a large chunk of the last year or two, I've, I've been mostly a full time writer and doing this sort of odd freelance project just to keep that side of things ticking over. I'm basically doing it either if I think, oh, my God, I need some money. Or um, if a really interesting project comes along and, you know, I'm fortunate that every so often the phone rings and someone's like, oh, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? Fantastic. That sounds really cool. And so what I tend to be is either full-time writing or full-time corporate. The writing extends over a period of, of years or two. The corporate stuff tends to work for a few weeks and then go away. So it's relatively easy to fit them together. Before that, before, you know, I sold Crashing Heaven and, and you know, the books kind of started generating income um it was just doing stuff whenever i could so i edited I, I did the major edits on crashing heaven mostly in hotel rooms in newbury um because i was doing a lot of work over there with with a client over there i was staying right. two three four nights a week and that was brilliant partially because i had no internet so there were no distractions um <laughs> yeah which is a great piece of writer advice just turn off the bloody internet and, and partially because it was right next to the old Green and Common Air Force Base. So it was marvellous. I'd spend my days in a, a kind of big corporate headquarters, terribly ballard, and um, come out from that, you know, and then go for a run on the old runways of the Air Force Base, you know, just to kind of clear my head. Actually, jog around. Have you seen yeah. the new Star Wars film? Yes, I have, yes. You know yes. they have those kind of bunkers where yeah. the, the rebel bases, those those are the old nuclear bunkers where they used to store the nuclear missiles, Gosh. actually, <laughs> on, on Green and Common. And uh, and so I'd go jogging around those, you know, and so I had this lovely moment of nostalgia seeing them on, on in Star Wars. Um, and you run around them, they're very heavily protected, they've got high fences. So I'd go running around those, and then I'd come back to my hotel room, which is also very Ballardian, and sit there and edit the book till midnight or one in the morning. And then usually try and watch an episode of CSI or something to turn my brain off and, and get up and, and go back to the corporate world the next day. Um, so I was very fortunate. I thought that was over a year of, of, you know, having this lovely regular work, which doesn't happen too often in the freelance world to, to be able to work on the book. And when I was actually writing the book, it was kind of a balance between, um, you know, if, if there was freelance stuff going on, I'd get stuck into that and write in the evenings. I tried to do a thousand words a day, five or six days a week. And if there wasn't, that was more time to focus on the book. So it was a balance of the yeah. two. And I was very, very involved in the social media world at that point. So a lot of what you read in the book about how the social media of the world of Crashing Heaven worked is a very direct reflection of work I was doing at the time with, with social media clients of one kind or another. It does sound as if you were fortunate in that you had work which allowed you to have some kind of routine or some kind of, you, you managed to find a routine that worked for you and, and so that that actually gave you a rhythm to, to, to writing in learning thousand words a day or whatever that you were doing there yeah absolutely and I've, I've only ever been able to write novels while i've been a freelancer and while i've had that kind of freedom of time um although what i find is that writing is one thing but what really needs the 100 percent concentration is, is editing yeah yeah because, that's true yeah, you, you just have to do such a deep dive, you know. Yes, I think that's true, actually. I mean, I find I can I can write in quite a lot of different environments, but so far, when I'm doing editing, I can only do it in, in a place that's completely quiet. Absolutely. Different people can do different things, and it's it's whatever that suits the person. But for me, that I, I can't do anything other than that. I mean, I, I live in Cambridge, and I'm fortunate in that I've got access to the yeah. university library here, so I go and sit in there 
still my editing because it's just a quiet space. Mm. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, yeah, it's a blasting out crazy stuff is one thing, but making it all make sense is kind of <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I think some people read around this genre and think, well, this is just crazy stuff, and this person's written wild crazy stuff, and they don't appreciate that actually there's a lot of. Yeah thought and precision and decisions that, that underpin it absolutely to yeah. keep the to keep the tension of the work yeah. you think this is crazy and makes no sense you should have seen the first draft you know? <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> yeah um now we've talked a lot about culture and and genre and trends and stuff what what do you think are the important trends in fantasy science fiction now uh, what what are the ideas that you think are worth exploring by yourself or perhaps by other writers oh good lord that's a really, that's such a huge question. Um, and again, you mentioned that you'd be talking about that. I've been thinking, good grief. I mean, I, th- I think the first thing, that, that sort of implies that science fiction is, is a bit of a monolith. And, and we live in it, you know, there's, there, there's no such thing as canon anymore. There's kind of too, content out, too much content out there. Yes. So I think everyone is already exploring everything with, with a greater or lesser degree of efficiency. Um, it's just finding it and working out whether they're doing it in a book or a computer game or in some crazy podcast or, you know. But I think everything is probably already out there. You know, the challenge is finding the individual bits of it. But for me, the really important things, I mean, for me, science fiction is, is, is the kind of literature of the sort of social impact of technology. Um, and, the, and the personal impact of technology, you know, what, not what is this cool technology, but what's it mean for me? You know, how's it going to change my life? How's it going to change myself? And so I think exploring that is tremendously important. And for me, that cyberpunk is the way to do that because it is, it's, that is the bit of science fiction that combines an approximation of modernity with an approximation of the kind of heavy, weird, destabilizing technology that, that really is interesting to dig into, but is also about to happen. And cyberpunk is also very interested in kind of social technology and in corporate technology and the sort of corporate structures and how they work and sort of social organisation and that stuff. And so I think, you know, every, everyone, of course, should be writing cyberpunk. I was going to ask you about cyberpunk anyway, actually, and I kind of missed that somehow. What's the kind of must-read two or three books, do you think, for somebody who, who thinks, oh, I've heard of cyberpunk and I'm quite interested. What's that all about? Where, where should people go to kind of understand the genre? Well, the classics, I mean, you've got to read Neuromancer. I mean, I, I reread that a year or so ago just because I hadn't read it for several years and my dad was reading it and I wanted to be able to talk to him about it. And I think if it was published today, it would still feel like it was talking about tomorrow. Not because of the technology, although some of it is startlingly prescient, but because of his kind of rhetorical strategy. He's constantly using terminology to kind of throw you out of the narrative and to destabilize you as a reader and to alienate you. To the extent, and you know, I adored the way he did that. I thought that was fantastic. And my dad was actively offended by it because he found it such a difficult thing to engage with. But that, for me, is what makes it feel like the future, because it's like the spiky bits of the future hitting you between the eyes and telling you to get stuffed. You're never going to understand this. Mm. I was going to say, it's a, a novel that puts you off balance, doesn't it? I read it relatively recently, and it is a novel where you do have to work hard because it yeah. does throw you off. Absolutely, yeah. And, I mean, even just in terms of keeping up with the plot. Oh, yeah. And keeping yeah. up with what the heck's going on, it, yeah. it, that's unnerving in itself, isn't it? Yeah, and I don't, I don't think he necessarily understood what had happened, because if you read the next two books... None of them really sort of follow up on it or pay off it. You have this weird thing happening at the end with the Russian ice and winter mute, and it's all astonishing. Mm. You're like, oh my god, the apocalypse is here. And <laughs> then, you know, the next two books, obviously something's going on somewhere in the background, but it, it, it's not as worked through as you think. So I think it's just this astonishing achievement. I, I, I think it's an incredible book. I think um, Pat Cadigan is, is always worth reading. I read Sinners a while back and was, was you know, really, really impressed by that. But the person that's really blown me away recently, do you know a fantasy writer called Max Gladstone? I've not heard of him, no, but uh, tell me about him. Well, he's fascinating. He, when I started planning Crashing Heaven, it was originally going to be a fantasy novel. And, you know, I was kind of excited that I wanted to write fantasy, but, you know, and it was set in, in a world where um, a, a sort of magical city had just been attacked. Well, basically what had happened was these guys had had an industrial revolution. But instead of doing it with coal and stuff, they'd gone out, captured dragons, lobotomized them and strapped the lobotomized dragons to the side of their factories and used that to power their industrial revolution. And 
understandably, the dragons were really pissed off by this, and so had launched a war on them. But it had taken a while to get their act together, because they're all anarchists, because that's what dragons are. Um, but they'd hammered the city into the dust, and blah, 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 and, and the book would be set in the aftermath of this war. And I wanted to talk about kind of social media, about sort of personal technologies, about augmented reality, all of that. And I spent a lot of time kind of thinking up these sort of magical equivalents of them. You know, this was about the first four months of planning the book. And I, I just had this moment when, one day when I was like, oh, this is bullshit. Why am I thinking up magical equivalents of this stuff to write a fantasy novel when I could just write a science fiction novel and not have to bugger about with, you know, pentagrams that are Twitter or something? Um, and so I, I replanned it as a science fiction book and it worked very well. I wrote it, you know. And you can see, you know, for example, I mean, fundamentally Crashing Heaven is a fantasy novel. It's about a boy and his magic sword killing a god or, or you know, a wizard and his familiar. Yeah. Um, taking on a great power, you know, is absolutely a fantasy book, but it's really a science fiction book. And I'm very glad it turned out like that. It wouldn't, you know, <laughs> it would have sucked. <laughs> well, it's it's funny you should say so that in terms of like fantasy and science fiction, because way back when I was quite a fan of putting some clear blue water between fantasy and science fiction and keeping the two genres very distinct. But the more I read, the more I think actually it's really yeah. I, I, I'm reluctantly coming to the conclusion that actually you can't you can't do that. And, and I guess your your book is one example of that. These these forms just do intertwine. Um, and and, and that's, it's just, yeah. it's fascinating. I, I, I now think yeah okay fine uh, I'll, I'll just kind of come quietly and say that that's that's the way it is yeah, no i'm with you there i mean i think you know the fundamental difference is that you change the furniture and explain things in different ways but um you know fundamentally it's mm. people you recognize and empathize dealing with weird shit that you've never encountered before you know i think the way i define it in my head is is science fiction is things that could happen fancy is things that never happen and horror is things you don't want to happen and you, you sort of move between <laughs> those poles basically depending on what you're writing at any given time yeah um, but yeah going back to the rant um max gladstone wrote the kind of fancy book that i was thinking about writing and basically um I mean, i've read the first book in the trilogy and was blown away and haven't got around to reading the next two because you know deep and stuff um but it's fundamentally sort of corporate cyber fantasy it's really really good it, the, the heroine is this kind of management consultant wizard who, who gets sucked into an evil deal with a kind of demonic management consultancy and, and has to resurrect a god and it's absolutely fantastic and it absolutely nails that kind of cyber thing in fantasy so i think for a sideways view on cyberpunk you know he, he's hugely worth checking out i think he's very good if you go back to the kind of old masters i suppose you've got things like snow crash oh yeah i mean if you step beyond that i mean john brunner's stand on zanzibar is astonishing i mean really, that was was remarkable and even beyond that i mean if you go it's not quite cyberpunk but people like um barrington bailey i mean reading um what's it the garments of of Cayenne, where the, the the MacGuffin is a suit so well tailored that it reprograms your mind to take over the universe, and it, it's fantastic. You know, it's such a brilliant, a brilliant, brilliant way of writing science fiction, and the way he manages it, you know, it, it, it works perfectly. Or, or the Zen gun, you know, where there's a kind of cosmos destroying gun that is so powerful it can only be fired by a Zen monk, a fully enlightened Zen monk because he's a fully enlightened Zen monk would never actually fire it you know ideas like that are marvellous oh before then Charles Harness was a big influence as well but he's not remote cyberpunk um, one of the interesting things though stuff kind of becomes cyberpunk so I was reading um, the Northwest Smith stories you know the old sort of C.L. Moore stuff stuff like that crazy pulp stuff from back in the day which was written with no sense of science whatsoever so you know everyone's on Mars they can all breathe you know or the Lee Brackett stories and you kind of read it now and you sort of think well this is great because they're not talking about literal stuff they're talking about augmented reality so someone's on mars with a sword they walk into a palace they get attacked by jeweled robots and then suddenly they get teleported somewhere else and they talk to a djinn and then they wander out again and in the pulp days you kind of this is just what pulp science fiction is how marvelous then you move into this kind of more rational view of science fiction you know where you're like well i'll just go and read some asimov there are no equations in this it doesn't make sense and then now you think oh well, this is just augmented reality you know this is just batshit crazy stuff that someone's overlaid on reality um, and that was a big thing for crashing heaven they realized that you can use fully fan full fantasy tropes in a science fiction setting because augmented reality because we live in an increasingly fantasized world, where we we can increasingly overlay it with our fantasies of what we'd like it to be. 
I think maybe that's why, for me, Hugo Fist was a puppet. I was never going to mm. think, why is Hugo Fist a puppet? You know, because because he just is. Uh, mm. It's you know why 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 does Android have a little robot? Uh, why did Microsoft have a a, a paperclip? It it just it yeah. uh, perhaps in the age we live now, there's a lot more that we just accept because it can exist in the in in mm. in the virtual world and it can be what it is and that's fine. Sorry, I was just going to say because for me with my branding hat on, you know, I always feel the need to explain imagery on on some level. Um, most of the public imagery you meet in Crashing Heaven is kind of explained, you know, so someone will comment, oh, this is clearly here to communicate this and communicate that. So, there's, you know, that was quite a strong feeling for me throughout. It's a heavily branded world, so there has to be a reason for, for individual bits of, of brand iconography meet. Um, they've got to be communicating something because that's what they're there for. And also, I did have a sense, I think the one thing you have to do with science fiction is sooner or later you have to explain things. You know, even if it's a bit hand-wavy and slightly bullshitty, there's got to be a reason for them to be there. And, and perhaps that's one of the, the differences in science fiction and, and sort of fantasy is that, you know, you kind of feel it's part of the genre that at some point someone stops and explains things in rational terms. I mean, you meet ghosts crashing heaven, but they're digital, so they're not really ghosts. I think there is a there's a kind of mysterious thing which happens where if somebody has really done their homework on backstory and works on the plausibility, as I think you have done here, even without you being explicit and doing too much mm -hmm. kind of um, signposting of what's going on, I think that just kind of seeps into the work and it, it shows. And it may be just a writer who's done their, their, their homework has more mm -hmm. assurance in their style and is more convincing mm -hmm. in the way they present things. And I think that helps a lot with not necessarily having yeah you're right you do have to say some things pretty clearly mm -hmm. but other things i think if you've if you've got some of that it's like when we came we talked about the tintin stuff if you if you get bits of detail right it just reassures the reader and they think yeah okay i'm in safe hands this guy's done the work he mm -hmm. knows what he's doing or she knows what she's doing and i'm fine mm -hmm. coming to sort of a couple of final questions now what sort of advice would you give to aspiring authors, perhaps particularly authors that are, are working in fantasy or science fiction at the moment? First of all, sort of find your own weird, you know, look for the things that inspire you and that freak you out or that excite you and, and don't try and replicate what's already out there. You know, I think it's tremendously important. You know, I think you, you were saying, oh, you dig into yourself and you build outwards from there, from the stuff that's already in you and you didn't know about it. So, you know, go inwards rather than outwards. Um, although, you know, of course, you still have to be looking at the world. And secondly, read, read non-genre. You know, I, I feel like I'm in a slightly weird situation at the moment because on the one hand, I'm in science fiction. You know, I'm, I'm a science fiction writer publishing science fiction books. But on the other hand, to write those books, I spend a lot of time reading, you know, particularly factual stuff that isn't science fiction so I haven't read too much science fiction lately and I kind of feel like if science fiction was a house I'm stood inside it looking out the window you know so I can't admire the lovely sofa or the you know the beautiful table lamp you know like I probably will later on um you know I'm looking out at the landscape and seeing what I can pull into the house so you know there's that look beyond the genre as well as within it and are you reading outside the genre to support the work that you eventually write or are you reading outside the genre because it's just great to read a bit of biography or history or travel or maths or whatever it is that you're doing. I mean, it depends where I'm at. I mean, I, when I'm starting stuff off, when I'm planning stuff, I tend to do a lot of research reading of, you know, so, um, oh, how does this work? How does that work? You know, whatever. Um, when I'm deep in stuff, you know, I find it hard to read fiction while I'm writing fiction. So I need a bit of a change from it uh, when I come out of it. There are periods when I'm neither planning nor editing nor writing when I can take a break and actually, you know, sort of dive through fiction. And what tends to happen is that I have four or five or six or seven books queued up that I race through in a, a, a few weeks. And then I have to dive back into the book. So my brain sort of switches a bit. Um, yeah, and two more bits of advice as well, because I actually thought about this and, and made notes. You know, especially for me with a film background, read about the craft. You know, there's a craft writing. And particularly, I, I worked in development, so I saw lots and lots of scripts that people had written and submitted on the off chance that they would be the new Quentin Tarantino. And most of them weren't, you know, not because they were necessarily bad writers, but they had no sense of craft or structure or sort of building characters. So so read about the craft, read about the practicalities of writing. Any, any suggestions on where to go for the craft? For me, it was all film stuff. So um, Sid Field's screenwriting handbooks, Excellent. Um, Christopher Vogler's um, the, the Writer's Journey book is 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 problematic, but is is very much worth a read. Actually, I got thrown out of one of his script seminars once for, for daring to suggest there was more more than one way to tell a story. 
the there's a great guy who wrote um, at, the, at the beginning of the 20th century. This guy called Lajos Egri wrote a book on playwriting that is superb. You know, it's kind of everything you need to know to write stories. And I, I'm sure. I mean, I was reading this stuff 10 or 15 years ago. I'm sure there's a lot of good stuff since then. Um, there's good stuff. Lisa Tuttle wrote a good guide to writing genre fiction. Um, I mean, Alan Wall, who, who's you know sort of a, a friend of Mike Moorcock's and is, is a very good realist writer, but very very genre aware, wrote an excellent guide to writing fiction. The Stephen King book is fantastic. You know, there's all sorts of good stuff out there. Yes. And and finally as well, the one thing that I've seen people do so many times is they start writing something. And then they sit down, and it's the first draft of, of an early piece of, you know, of, of one of the first things they've ever written. And then they go and find their favourite book by their favourite writer, and they compare what they've just written to that, and they go, oh my god, it's terrible, I'm a terrible writer, I'm never going to write anything again. No, you have to learn how to write, you have to rewrite, you know, you have to do all that stuff before things get good. So what's actually very heartening is either go to the early forgotten books by your favourite writer. I mean, I used to spend a lot of time reading early Shakespeare because it kind of sucks, you know. Everyone turns out to be twins, none of the jokes are funny, you know. And and just look at people while they're still learning. And that's very heartening because you understand the process you have to go through. And also watch bad stuff. I mean, I spent a lot of time watching terrible daytime TV, not just because I was unemployed, but, but thinking, why isn't this working for me? You know, sort of taking it to pieces, analysing it, um, trying to understand exactly why it was broken. So critiquing stuff that doesn't work is as important, if not more important, than reading or inspiringly good stuff, you know? Yes, though I think that certainly is true. I think it's certainly, if you or if you read something and you think, that doesn't really work for me, then it's, it's definitely worth saying, why? Yeah, why doesn't it work? What can I learn from that? Why does this suck? How can I avoid yeah. it? You know, the two big questions, why does this suck? How can I avoid it? And why does this work? How can I steal it? <laughs> and you have to steal it. If you borrow something, it doesn't belong to you, whereas if you steal it, it does. <laughs> you, you tell me a little bit about your working on the third book in the series. What, what else are you working on at the moment? Oh, not much else, you know. Um, well, tell me about that book then, in fact. Just what are you, what are you doing at the moment? Well, I mean, it's, it's the future of Station. I mean, I can't tell you too much without massive spoilers. Sure. But, no, um, no, no, that's fine. Yeah, how to describe it. Um, basically, the second book um, doesn't it isn't Hugo Fist's book. He's not in it. And I'm thinking about bringing him okay. back to the third book. Because by the end of Crashing Heaven, you know, the chip on his shoulder is pretty much resolved. You know, he's in quite a good place. Mm. And it sort of needs an entire book of stuff happening that's going to really piss him off to kind of put the chip back on his shoulder and animate him and, and make him want to get out there and sort of take yeah, yeah. that's an interest that's interesting actually what would provoke and upset hugo fist um i'd discuss you know not that we're gonna discuss it now but well hugo achieves something very big at the end of crashing heaven but he can't really tell anyone about it but it's it's big enough that he doesn't mind that too much so if in book two someone were to not only achieve something equally big but to do so in a tremendously public way that meant they got a claim that never came to him, that would piss him right off. Yes, that would. That would. So wh- whoever out out Hugo's Hugo yes. is really going to wind him up. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. He, he he appears in the second book. He gets a chat show as a reward. So you know you you, you sort of see him in the background in a couple of scenes and he's referred to. But uh, yeah, in book three, I think the chat show is going to be boring him. And he might well be on the rampage again. But we'll see. I'm still working it out and trying to see how I'd make it Yeah, sure. So how can people find out about you and find out about your work now? Well, the best way of finding out about the work is, you know, of course, go and read it. And a fantastic present for friends and family as well. Um, no, I mean, there's a really good um, audio book of it, too, that um, the actor did a superb job in particular with Hugo's voice, but that's worth checking out if it's not your thing. I've got short stories up on the website. Though most of the short stories I've, I've published are, are fancy and horror rather than science fiction. But there's some, you know, there's some writing there that I, I really enjoyed writing and I'm very proud and of. And your website is? It's illumination.co.uk. It's, it's my old sort of um, blog from way back when. So it's basically illumination except with an A instead of an I because it was in about 2004. It was my witty pun on Al and illumination. Um, but yeah, that's got sort of details of all sorts of stuff. And I've also got a Facebook page, facebook.com slash Al Robertson writes, where I haven't updated it for a while, but I kind of put reviews and upcoming events and stuff there. But, you know, come and have a chat on Twitter, turn up Facebook page, and I'm, I'm often at conventions and stuff like that. So, you know, just come and say hello is, is the best thing to do. 
Are you speaking at anything this year? I mean, we're doing this in 2016, at the beginning of 2016, so is there anything coming up for you? I uh, don't have concrete plans. I'm probably going to be at Nine Worlds this summer. I suspect probably FancyCon, probably um, EasterCon up in Manchester, but at the moment, with you know, we're still sort of just the year is beginning and we're sort of working things up. Yeah, sure. Okay. And I'm sure also there'll be kind of events around the launch of, of Waking Hell, but that's that's very much a wait-and-see thing. And Golan's too, tempting good stuff, so just keep an eye on them. Um, because I pop up. And obviously your your work is at the usual haunts, Amazon and the like, I presume, isn't it, anyway? Yeah, all over yeah, the place. Sure. And, and for any American listeners, up until recently there's been a glitch and the ebook has been unavailable in America. Oh, okay. That's getting sorted out. So it's either available now or is about to be available. So um, that, that should make it easier to get hold of in the States. It's also being translated into German uh, and Russian, uh, I know the German translation has happened. I'm not sure what the publication date is, and I'm not sure what the Russian status of that, and I think Hungarian as well. And uh, just to endorse what you said earlier, I, I got the audio book of Crashing Heaven, which I thought was excellent, and your, your your voice actor, I can't remember his name now, did a great job there. Um, and as you say, I think mm. the voice he managed to find for Hugo Fist just captured the character really well. It was great. Oh, fun. he nailed Yeah, it was a brilliant, brilliant job. So uh, if audiobooks is your way, then then I would I would suggest that that's a, that's definitely a good buy. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Al, thanks very much for your time. It's been great to talk to you. I covered a lot of stuff, and it's been fascinating. I do appreciate you you talking to me this evening. As I said, if people want to just follow up, you can they can go to your website uh, and find your work there as well. Okay. Yeah. Thanks very much indeed. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure being here. Brilliant. Okay then, Al. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheerio. Bye. Bye. Bye.